Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. Hello there. Welcome to the second episode of Meeting with the Spiritual Masters. My name is Chris Britt. I'm the host of the episode. And today I am once again with Dale Borglum, the uh, director of the Living Dying Project. And Dale, I'd like to welcome you here. Thanks for joining us again. Great to be back. We had so much fun the first time. We did. I, I've known Dale for, I think, seven years, and there's a lot of stories I haven't heard before. So last time we covered uh, Neem Karoli Baba, uh, Suzuki Roshi, Ananda Mai Ma, and the Dalai Lama. But as you mentioned, you've had many teachers in your life, and we're not going to go through the rest of them. There's, uh, there's innumerable, innumerable teachers you have, but we did come up with a list of those to talk about. So before we start, anything to cover, Dale? Uh, I, I don't know what to say. I mean, basically, we're just telling stories about enlightened masters that I've had the great grace to be with during this life. And there are a whole bunch of them that we're not going to be talking about, not because they're not great beings, but because I didn't have necessarily the same personal relationship where there are all kinds of stories involved. You know, I'd be uh, with uh, Kala Rinpoche, and it was very formal, for instance, and he certainly initiated me. In fact, I could even start. I could, I could, I could, I could tell you a Kala Rinpoche yeah. story uh, <laughs> when I was going to say there were not any Kala Rinpoche stories, but there's a practice called Tong Len. I don't know if you've heard of that. It's also called yes. Taking and Sending. It's a Buddhist practice where you, instead of breathing in the good stuff and breathing out the bad stuff, taking in love and grace and breathing out toxicity through deep compassion. You breathe in the suffering of others and you breathe out loving kindness that, to that person. You breathe out healing. Mm. And uh, I was taught this exercise by Kala Rinpoche. And uh, when I first heard about it, I thought, I don't want anything to do with that. That's for masochists and codependent fools. Uh, not me. But after a while, after spending some time with him, I really trusted him completely. I decided I, I would do this practice. So I was teaching a workshop uh, in San Francisco at that place right by the water. Oh, man, I can't remember the name of it. Fort Mason. Fort Mason, exactly. And we, we taught the work. So when you teach Tong Len, there's a visualization that comes along with it. And the visualization is you breathe in the negativity as hot, dark smoke, and you breathe out the healing as cool, white light. Okay, so we, we did the exercise, and we took a break, and we came outside at Fort Mason, and all this hot, dark smoke and ashes were pouring down. It was the day of the Oakland fire. Oh. And, <laughs> but it was so strange, because the, the first time I taught this exercise, and right after I taught it, the smoke came pouring down. I thought, this is a very powerful exercise. <laughs> Obviously, there, there was just a coincidence, but it was just quite remarkable. Right. So where were you when uh, you met uh, him? Uh, were you in the States? Yeah, that was at various places in the Bay Area after I came back from India. Uh, San Francisco, somewhere down the peninsula. He came to Marin, I think. 
I met him any number of times. He was one of the Dalai Lama's meditation teachers, a very, very beautiful soul for sure. Mm. All right. Great. Well, we touched upon him and let's start with Goenka. Uh, is it SN Goenka? And, and would you tell me about um, where, what teacher you were with before, perhaps, if you remember, where were you, first impressions, et cetera? So I, I got my PhD in math. I went to India. I ended up with Maharaji. And my mind was still kind of a turmoil and a turmoil from all that mathematics. It, it wasn't really calming down. And I thought, you know, if I could do some Buddhist meditation, maybe I could calm down and I could get closer to Maharaji. So I came to Maharaji and said, I hear there's this Buddhist teacher, Goenka. Can I go and study with him? And he said, if you wish. He was not very enthusiastic about it. He's probably thinking, why does he want to go be with that guy when he could be with me? But I don't know. <laughs> he just said, okay. So I went to Goenka and I did 40 days of straight meditation, actually four 10-day retreats. And he teaches a very intensive Vipassana practice where there's no walking, it's just sitting on the cushion, uh, essentially being with the sensations in your body, hour after hour after hour. My mind got so focused at the end of this that I was only sleeping about four hours a night and I was like meditating about 18 hours a day and the rest was like eating and doing a few different things. But Goenka was really famous for his loving kindness. He, is, he had a very strong metta, it's called, met the loving kindness practice. And I really remember going in for an individual interview with him and the quality of loving kindness that was pouring out of him as I was walking in the door felt like I was actually leaning into a strong headwind. headwind. I could actually feel a physical force of love coming, coming at me that it was mm -hmm. so, so powerful. I mean, it kind of shocked me that I could actually feel it in my body. And uh, Goenka, this isn't a story so much about him as about me, but I was really into the, the practice. And as the weeks went by, it got uh, more and more intense. My practice got stronger. And he could sense that something was ripe in me. And he gave me a private room to practice in. So I went into this private room, which is right next to the main meditation hall. Uh, and I meditated for an hour and I went into this remarkable place. The mind completely stopped. There was only space. Uh, and at the end of it, it was blissful. And I thought, maybe I'm enlightened. This is fantastic. And I got out of the room. I had to walk through the men, main meditation hall to get from where I was to the dining room. And as I'm walking to the dining room, another meditator stood up and bumped into me. And my first thought was, do you know who you just bumped into? I'm enlightened. <laughs> I guess I'm not enlightened. So that was a little disappointing. And this was the Vipassana training? It was Vipassana at a place called Bodh Gaya in India. It's the place where the Buddha got enlightened. And uh, under, the, un, under the Bodhi tree, uh, it was at the Burmese Vihar, the Burmese temple in Bodh Gaya, India. There was a huge, big storm that that uh, knocked the tent down. We were a lot of us were in a tent on top of the building, and uh, there was a cold snap. It was in January, and generally in this part of India, it never gets particularly cold. But it got so cold that a lot of the homeless people were were freezing to death. Hmm. And I had on it was it was so cold, 
And I wasn't really prepared for it. So I was sleeping with every article of clothing I had. I had two pairs of socks on my hands and on my feet, and I had every shirt on. And I still, it was like so cold. I had to really just relax to be able to sleep. I was so cold. So, and is Vipassana synonymous with insight meditation? Essentially, yes, it is. Okay. And for those who don't know, including myself, I haven't done any extensive retreats. I've done some day longs at the uh, uh, Spirit Rock Yeah, uh, just down the road. It, the, the foundation of, uh, of Vipassana is awareness, um, or, or and awareness is foundational in some of the other types of meditation that you teach. Is that, could you just speak a little bit to what, what Vipassana is and how it benefits someone for those just tuning in? So Vipassana is about cultivating mindfulness, uh, a balance-centered awareness in the present, so that you can begin to see how suffering arises. As you know, running the Living Dying Project, I work with people who are suffering, people who are dying, people with pain in their body, people who are grieving. And cancer does not cause suffering. Resistance to cancer causes suffering. Physical pain does not cause suffering. Resistance to physical pain causes suffering. So usually when we're having a hard time, we're feeling fear or anger, some difficult emotion, we fixate on the trigger. I'm angry because of the political turmoil that's going on right now. Right now we're talking two days after the election, you and me, because that was crazy times, crazy times, right? Right. So uh, Republicans are blaming the Democrats, stealing the election. The Democrats are blaming the Republicans for what, whatever they're doing. And instead of what does it feel like to be angry? Hmm. What does it feel like to be frightened? It's you out there who's causing me to feel this. So Vipassana is really essentially learning to withdraw all that blame and be aware of in a very direct, intimate almost naked way, what it feels like to have emotions, what it feels like mm -hmm. to breathe, what it feels like to have a thought. Uh, so that very often we don't experience things. I remember directly, we, 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 we don't experience our body, we experience concepts of our body. We don't experience our mind directly, we experience concepts of our mind. I remember at the end of a Vipassana retreat down in Yucca Valley in Southern California, uh, mind was really very focused and clear. And for breakfast, we had grapefruit sections along with some other things, uh, oatmeal or something, I don't know. And as I, I very mindfully started eating this piece of grapefruit, and I put it into my mouth and bit into it. The grapefruit, which is made up of tiny little sacks of grapefruit juice, right? They right. were exploding in my mouth. It was like ecstatic. And I realized I'd never really fully tasted a grapefruit. Like you start mm -hmm. biting into it, you say, oh, this is a pretty good one, or it's a little dry. And then you go back to thinking about life or something. But like to really eat the piece of grapefruit was just right. remarkable. It was, it was uh, almost blissful. So that anything, if you're really doing it, walking or breathing or eating a grapefruit or getting angry at somebody, if you're completely present, then you're alive. There's an awakeness. So that, that Vipassana is about going beyond all the concepts and really settling into what is actually happening. Hmm. 
sounds like before we move on to another teacher, I've had a, an experience with just a real vivid um, taste of a blueberry. And now when I eat a blueberry or I eat, I have an awareness sometime, a reflection that I'm, I'm so far from that state. There's such a distance between that there and now, or there appears to be, and that causes some uh, suffering for me. And so for me or anybody else who's in that, I imagine you have to be with, have the presence of mind to, to be with compassion, I guess, or at least, or, um, or what approach would you take to, to deal with that present moment of a, of a memory that's uh, of uh, your uh, clearer state? So that's a great question. And I didn't really answer the previous question. We got it slightly sidetracked. You said, is Vipassana part of the meditation you teach? And uh, compassion, which you just mentioned that you might have for not being able to taste your blueberry very fully. Compassion is the open heart meeting suffering. But the open heart can't mean, meet the suffering until you have enough awareness, mindfulness to be mindful of the suffering. So in a way, the, the mindfulness practice precedes the ability to open the heart and have loving kindness or gratitude or compassion. Hmm. So uh, I, had a, I had some other things I was going to say there. So you're trying to eat the blueberry. Right. right. I mean, you've had these experiences. I, when you had your grapefruit this morning, was it bursting in your mouth? And, went, <laughs> and if it did it, you don't carry that all the time into your life, I imagine. Um, I don't. Yeah. I, and, and certainly my, my mindfulness isn't as strong when I've been just spending the day like I have today uh, on the computer and talking to clients and running around town and things like that as if I were at the end of a long meditation retreat. Suzuki Roshi, who we talked about last time, had this wonderful quote where he said, the most important thing is finding the most important thing. Hmm. So if you think the most important thing is being awake so that you can taste your grapefruit and look at your friend with love and, and be present in your body and in your life, that's one thing. If you think the most important thing is just being happy and pushing suffering away and avoiding too much turmoil, then what we're talking about here doesn't make too much sense. So, I, yeah. so like in Tibetan Buddhism, before you even begin the mindfulness practice, they ask you to do some contemplations to create motivation. Like one of them is you're going to die, but you don't know when. What could be more obvious intellectually, right? But if you and I didn't know we were going to survive to the end of this interview, right? I mean, that, I mean, and we don't, do we really? I mean, do we really know? We don't know. Right. But if we really didn't know that, how much how much love, how much more connected would we be if we thought this is the last interaction of my life? This, this is it, me and Chris, right? I and, am staring into the white light right now, but it's a soft box made for uh, <laughs> shooting video. So hopefully this isn't it. Why hopefully? <laughs> it just doesn't look as bright as 10,000 suns. <laughs> oh, I see. Okay. But, so, so you were saying... I don't know what you're saying. I, 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 stopped, I got you in the middle of that. Well, you, you know what? You remind me of that um, great quote about uh, rearranging um, 
rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Yeah. So, I mean, in a way, what we're saying is, uh, it, it, even let me go back a sentence here. So I was saying before, cancer doesn't cause suffering, resistance to cancer causes suffering, right? Divorce doesn't cause suffering, resistance to divorce causes suffering. And I, I'm not saying that almost every human being isn't going to suffer if they have cancer or if they get divorced, but it's very difficult to heal the suffering if you're not aware of how it's arising, where it's coming from. It's coming from grasping. It's coming from rejecting the present moment and wanting to be different. So if we have a strong enough motivation, which comes to most people only because they're suffering so much, then whatever's arising, the political turmoil or the pandemic or uh, how crappy the weather has been in California this summer, all the fires and the smoke and the, the drought and everything that's going on, uh, all that stuff is going on. Can that be motivation to awaken? Or do we say, oh, this is like, this is too much. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to dive into Netflix. One person wrote that her biggest fear in the pandemic was she'd reached the end of Netflix. She'd <laughs> seen everything on Netflix. It was all done. That's a lot of Netflix. <laughs> yeah. You know, people talk about Netflix uh, binging on Netflix, uh, binging, like Netflix binging. Right. Or uh, taking a lot, I, I would call it taking a life fast, you know, <laughs> the opposite <laughs> of binging. So, yeah, and that quote you used about, um, it was in one of the meditations uh, about instead of trying to rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic, do you have the motivation to go into your suffering in a productive way and paraphrasing that is yeah. that what this is this whole we're not mas we're not masochists here in terms of um wanting to feel suffering but to to um i'm not, not even, even to get happy from that right i mean to liberate it from the the nature of suffering i want to suffer in a new way i'm i'm tired i see the old patterns of my suffering so i uh, i won't ask for anything new uh, suffering will come my way i'm sure so what I'm saying here, though, Chris, is that we're not trying to go into suffering. We're trying to go into our lives. We're trying to go into the present. And suffering will be there until we're free, until we're liberated. So it's not like you're looking for suffering. Right. Life will present it moment to moment. moment. It's not a masochistic thing. It's not right. trying to find suffering. It's trying to be how awake, how loving, how present, how embodied can I be moment to moment to moment? Right. How, how alive are you willing to be? So let's choose another person to talk about here. Uh, we could talk about the uh, 16th Karmapa. Uh, did we, we didn't okay. cover the 16th. Yeah, why don't we start there? So after I came back to America, even though I'd been with Maharaji, who was not a Tibetan Buddhist, the, the best teachers that seemed to be coming to America at that point were these really fantastic Tibetan Buddhist. There was the, the Dalai Lama, who we talked about last week. There was the 16th Karmapa, who's since died now. There's the 17th Karmapa. There's Dujim Rinpoche, Dingo Kense, Sakya Trinzen, the heads of all the, the main schools of Tibetan Buddhism. And uh, His Holiness, the, the 16th Karmapa, would, I saw him a few times do this thing called the Black Hat Ceremony, where he put on this big black it's almost like a crown. It's hard to describe it really. Very elaborate, big hat. 
And as he put it on, though, he was he would go into an entirely he became a different person. He was doing some internal thing where he became a deity. And he would do that right in front of a room full of people. So here's this guy, this very, very wonderful man, very loving, kind, jovial guy. And he'd do this thing. And all of a sudden, it was like you were, you were transported to another, to another uh, uh, realm of consciousness just by him doing that. And both Dujan Rinpoche and the 16th Karmapa, the first time they met me, the first time I met them, they started laughing at me. <laughs> They came into the room, they took one look, there's like dozens, hundreds of people in the room. They looked at, right at me and they started laughing. <laughs> what do you think that was about? Well, they never said, but I, the feeling I got, I mean, it was not like, it was not like a mean laugh. It was kind of like, oh, there you are, this life. That's funny. I mean, like they were remembering from a time back, like whenever that we were like, I don't know, like we, we were not neurotic westerners right that that i mean i i'm i'm just i'm just guessing here but it's just right. felt like that they saw me in this particular incarnation they thought it was quite amusing but so, that's really that's that's really an interesting notion that here we are we're so busy being who we are here it is 2020 and there's the the election going on of the pandemic and we have families and children and jobs and lovers and enemies and all this stuff going on. And we take it all so seriously. And then there's the, there's, there's the Karmapa looking at me. He, he just laughs. Oh, you're in that life. Right. You know, I mean, can we look at ourselves that way and not take our incarnation quite so seriously? And this makes me think a lot of people listening to this, maybe not those who are drawn to this particular podcast says, well, there is suffering there. This is real. This is really real, and it's it's uh, and I my suffering's justified. You know, I was talking to someone today, and she says, "I can't wait for the election results to fully come in and this be over." I'm thinking, personally, I've been reflecting on what in my life do I think needs to change for me to be happy, and I feel like uh, happiness is the way. I, I mean, uh, cultivating. It's hard to explain for myself, but to be less dependent on circumstances, there is, there is a, a freedom there to be less, less dependent on that. That's, that's the approach I'm feeling as I do more meditation work. My mind is orienting in that way. That's how, I, that's how I'd put it. I don't know if how you, what you get from when I say that. So your friend is looking for the election to res uh, be done so she can stop worrying about or being anxious or whatever right. it might be. But I guarantee you that after the election's done and that calms down, she's going to find something else to be concerned about. And as long as we're, we're grasping at happiness, we're having to judge each arising experience. Is it a happy-making one or is it a not happy-making one? So that we're kind of like one step removed from an intimate relationship with our experience because we're, we're trying to find the happy making ones. Whereas on the other hand, if what we want is truth, if what we want is aliveness, beingness, then that includes suffering and not suffering includes everything. Yeah. But eventually, uh, as a side effect, we find a joy that transcends happiness and sadness. Happiness and sadness are 
are just part of the human experience. They're not good or bad. I mean, obviously, happiness is in a way more pleasurable than sadness. Although Maharaji kept would say, I love sadness. I'm, I feel closer to God when I'm sad. Hmm. So it's not that sadness is a bad thing. It's that we tend to get caught in it. We tend to identify, I'm sad or I'm afraid. Once again, in English, we say, I am afraid. In Spanish, we say, essentially, I have fear. And in Tibetan, we say, fear is here. So we're, we're it's it just the way we think and language things. That's much more it's, spacious. Yeah, more... It, it's so contracted in the way we do it in English. Right. So that your friend, through her life experience, will eventually get to the point where she's, she gets tired of going back and forth between grasping at happiness. You're happy for a little while and it's gone and you try to find it again and the election's done, but then there's the next thing and then the pandemic and then the, then the relationship and then the money. This is on and on it goes, right? And eventually you get tired of suffering. You say, why am I suffering? What's going on here? What is the nature of reality? Who am I? Right. And and that's that's where the that's where the vipassana comes in. You start just by watching your breath. You see how the grasping at certain experiences causes suffering. So, uh, Trump or Rinpoche? <laughs> Do you like my transitions, Dale? No, I just I'm just laughing when I think of Trungpa because there's so many stories about him. Trungpa Rinpoche. And yes. Who, who is who is Trungpa? And it started with that as well. Uh, and where were you, etc. So Trungpa was one of these guys that was coming to the Bay Area. Uh, he was famous for showing up at his talks like an hour or two late, and he maybe he'd be a bit inebriated when he showed up or something. Whereas the Karmapa and the Dalai Lama and Dujan Rinpoche, all these other people were much more uh, formal and together in a certain way. Uh, but eventually then Trungpa created, founded the first Buddhist university in America called Naropa University. And he invited Ramdas to teach a course there at the first summer at Naropa University. So this was in 1974, uh, about less than a year after Maharaji left his body. So. Ramdas and me and about eight or 10 other people went to Boulder, Krishnadas and Chayutal and Rameshwardas and Dwarka, a whole bunch of our satsang went there to teach this class with Ramdas. He was like the professor. We were like the teaching assistants. And he would teach on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And Trunk would teach Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. Maybe it was the other way. They each had like a thousand people in the in the class. And they were like dueling teachers. And uh, it was just quite a remarkable time. But Trungpa was this very rascally kind of guy. He taught crazy wisdom. It wasn't about keeping it together and where it's, being religious and spiritual is whatever you can do to become free. And in those days, a lot of people on the spiritual path wore white clothes. We had spiritual names. We tried to be kind of holy. And he was, I think, by being sort of roguish and drinking and womanizing and things, showing people that there's not one way to be spiritual, that if you're really meditating, if you're really focused on your practice, 
then whatever you're doing will be bringing you to being uh, closer to the end of the path. That sentence didn't come out right now, but you hear what I'm saying. Yeah, let me ask you a question. This could be a whole podcast about just the term spiritual path. I have a sense of what it means for me now, but I've, I've heard it said a lot. And some people think, well, well, what is the path? Um, where does it go? And when you die, is the path, does the path end? Is uh, what um, can you say rather succinctly as not to, um, I know I'm asking the question, but not to, uh, uh, there's probably another person to talk about. Could you say something about the concept of spiritual path? This is such a big question, Chris, and it, it kind of takes away talking about the masters. But okay, let's, I another mean, episode. A way, a way they say that the, the goal is the path. The, the the path isn't to get somewhere. the The notion of enlightenment is realizing that who we are right now is already whole. And yes, you're suffering, and I'm suffering, and your friend who wants the election to be done, the results to come in is suffering. Uh, but Enlightenment ultimately is realizing that there's nothing to achieve that isn't already here. It's it's called the pathless path or the goalless path. Uh, we we create the path by walking in it. It's not like there's some thing out there that we're going toward, but that as we're moving forward, it seems like moving somewhere. Although we're maybe not getting anywhere, that just by having the motivation, having the the intention to be free of trying to utilize our life experience as a way of seeing how suffering is creating and how we can have compassion for suffering rather than automatically rejecting it. And out of that compassion, finding a spaciousness, then it's all the path. There's, there's nothing needs to be fixed or changed or uh, thrown away. Hmm. Suzuki Roshi, once again, who we talked about uh, last week, had this other super great quote where he said, we're all perfect, but there's still room for improvement, right? right. So we're all perfect. There's, there's nothing to achieve, but at the personality level, at the body level, yeah, when, when somebody uh, punches you in the nose, it hurts. When, when, you, when you burn your finger, it hurts. When you uh, get sick, it hurts. I was... Uh, I'm preparing a talk for this post-election webinar that we're having in a few days here. And I was reading some old notes and there was this article in the paper about how they're teaching mindfulness in the uh, elementary schools in Oakland. And they asked a young boy who is a meditator, what does meditating mean to you? And he said, what it means to me is when I get angry and want to punch the other boy in the nose, I don't. <laughs> that, that there's that gap between the impulse arising and feeling the impulse, feeling the anger. And instead of acting, just saying, ah, oh, okay, I can just be with this feeling without doing a crazy thing. Okay. So back to Trumpa. I took us off the path for a <laughs> spiritual path, although... It's all the same. <laughs> right. Yeah. So uh, tell me, so you were saying um, there was Ramdas teaching one some nights and then Trumpa teaching the other nights and uh, Trumpa was trying to show everyone that, uh, that um, perhaps their way wasn't the only way. 
at least that's how I'm, I'm paraphrasing it. But um, any stories particular about your experience with uh, Trump or Ribichet? Well, he would give these, as I say, he would give these lectures. There's like about a thousand people, I think, in the room. I don't know. It's like a huge room, all full of people. Maybe I'm exaggerating. It was a lot of people. And a couple of things I noticed. One was that the dumber the question was. So at, at the end of a talk, he said, does anybody have any questions? So out of a thousand people, there's going to be some really dumb questions. And particularly since this was the very beginning of all of the stuff being talked about in the West. But what I noticed was that the dumber the question was, the more brilliant and pithy the response was. But if somebody on the other hand had this really elaborate, subtle question, he gave kind of a offhand response to it. So that uh, I don't know quite what that meant, but it, I mean, it's kind of showing that you don't have to overthink it. Just, okay, here it is. So one night he gave this talk and he's up on the stage and next to him is a craft that looks like it has water in it, but it's sake, right? So all night he's got his glass and he's pouring sake in and he's drinking away as the talk goes on. And the talk was so brilliant that at the end of the talk, when I went outside, the, the, the leaves of the trees were glowing with consciousness. I was in this like altered state. But at the same time, when he got up from the talk, he fell over drunk. Right? And there was a paper uh, making its rounds among the teachers that he had written called On Conscious Drinking, not unconscious, but On Conscious Drinking. And what he said is that if you, if you remain really, really mindful as you're imbibing alcohol, that you don't need to get drunk in the same way, hmm. that you, you don't need to become inebriated in this, in this common way. So I had a girlfriend at the time. I won't mention her name. She'll be grateful for that. She was a fantastic meditator. We got a big bottle of sake. We put it down between us. And we started meditating. And every 10 minutes or so, we take a big slug of sake, right? At the end of an hour, it felt like I was on psychedelics. My mind had completely dissolved. The ego was nowhere to be found. It's this incredible meditation. And yet when I got up to go to the bathroom, my body was drunk. But my mind was completely clear. Hmm. I don't know what the point of that is, but for all you boys and girls out there <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Here's another story about Trunk, but I think it's just it's just so funny. So he had different uh, scenes. One of them was in Boulder, but he had a meditation place up at Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And to drive from Boulder, Colorado to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, it's just cowboy country. There's nothing in between those two places, but like cowboy bars and the Wild West. So he, he says to some of his students, we're going to have to drive up to Jackson Hole. A few, get in the car, a few of you guys get in the car and we're going to drive up there during the evening, during the night. So there's a handful of these guys they're in this car and partway up there in the middle of nowhere, he wants to stop at a cowboy bar. So they go into the bar and as they come in, there's a bunch of cowboys there. And one of them makes a racist remark about the slant eye that just came in the door. Trump doesn't say anything. They sit down at the table, order some beers, whatever, drinks, I don't know. And when the guy who made the remark was about to take his next pool shot, they were playing pool, Trungpa got up to go to the bar to get another drink and seemingly accidentally bumped into the guy just as he was about to make a shot and ruin the guy's shot. 
And the guy got mad and said, what are you doing? Can't you pay attention? You know, I look, I'm trying to, and Trunko said, oh, you know, so little time goes by. The same thing happens. The guy's about to take a shot. Trunko just lurches into him right at the perfect moment, ruins the shot. Now the guy's really upset. Okay. Some more time goes by. Trunko does, does it the third time. This time the guy says, I've reached my limit. I've got a lot of friends here. You're in big trouble. And he starts coming toward Trunkpa. And Trunkpa pulls out a water pistol and squirts the guy right in the face. And, and the guy was so dumbfounded, he couldn't be angry. He didn't know what to do. I mean, Trunkpa was totally <laughs> fearless. He didn't run away. He didn't get angry back. He shot him in the face with a, with a, with a water pistol. Do you think there could be a moment of... Uh... Uh, passion where after you get escorted in the face with water that you pull out your real pistol and I don't think so I think you just be so I, I think it's so ridiculous it's it's, it's so funny that uh, it would stop well, somebody I, in their tracks it sounds it, like there's, there's another story I, I didn't I, I thought of the story when I was thinking about what we talk about tonight and I was almost not going to tell it because I didn't I don't remember it's about Trungpa or about Sokni Rinpoche I think it was about Trungpa though anyway he was younger he was in Tibet he had an attendant and he and his attendant were walking from one monastery to the next. And as they're almost to the second monastery, they have to go by a house right by the road, just uh, like a hundred yards from the monastery. And uh, to the front of this house is chained a huge Tibetan mastiff dog. I mean, these are huge dogs they have in Tibet for guarding the house. And the dog does not like people walking by his house. So the dog is like straining at the chain, straining at the chain, growling like he wants to eat people alive. They just get past the house. The dog breaks the chain and he comes running at the two of them. The attendant makes a, a beeline for the, the gate of the monastery, hoping to get there before the dog bites him. And Trungpa sees the dog coming and he starts running at the dog barking. And the dog puts his tail between his legs and runs away, which is kind of the same story that when fear arises or when a fearful situation arises, do you have to get afraid or you just say, okay, this, here, here's danger and getting all panicked and upset about it is not the skillful way to deal with this. I mean, can we meet something head on? There's one other person we wanted to cover, and I thought before we wrap up, we could cover. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing the name correctly. Uh, is it uh, Dujum Rinpoche? Dujum Rinpoche? Dujum Rinpoche is, uh, I mentioned him as one of the two guys that laughed at me oh, okay. the, first, the first time he saw me. And he is the head of uh, one of the four schools of Tibetan Buddhism the Nyingma school, I believe it is. And he was a, a very powerful uh, meditation teacher, uh, greatly respected. Of course, he's since died. So let's just leave it that one, one story that he laughed at me. I, I didn't have much of a personal relationship with him. I just met right. him at a few empowerments. And the first time was the one where he started laughing at me. So uh, I, I greatly loved him, and uh, I had some friends who studied quite closely with him who had great, great respect for him, but I, I don't have any other personal stories. All right. Well, I would call this an episode, and <laughs> before we end, I will mention that 
my name is Chris Britt. I could have done that at the top. I think maybe I did. I blend magic and mindfulness and uh, healing work together in an entertaining way to engage people. And uh, I have a website, chrisbritt.com, C-H-R-I-S-B-R-I-T-T.com. And Dale, if you'd like to tell a little bit about yourself for those um, who feel like they have a connection with what you're saying, would you say something? Yeah, I'm the director of the Living Dying Project, uh, which is an outgrowth of something that Ramdas and Stephen Levine founded back in the late 70s, early 1980s, the beginning of the conscious dying movement, where we try to bring the Dharma to the encounter with life-threatening illness. Uh, my website is livingdying.org. There's a lot of great free information on it. It's the most complete site on the internet uh, with information about conscious dying. Uh, a lot of what I do now is not so much about dying, but about the living part of living dying. I have meditation groups. I have people that I do spiritual counseling with. Uh, that's about it. I, I have some groups, but by the time this, because I, I do have a group every other Saturday, a free group, Saturday mornings, California time. Uh, it's got about 100 people in it. And I'm also having some training workshops in January and February with CEU continuing education units for California therapists, psychologists, social workers, acupuncturists, and nurses. Hmm. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, so I actually noticed we do have a, a commenting feature on here and uh, someone asked, is there a next episode? And I think uh, I, I, I would love to do this again. Uh, and then there's a question, are questions acknowledged? And I think I will acknowledge that question by saying, yes, next time we'll make some time for some questions perhaps. And again, Dale, and by the way, the person who wrote that, please reach out and, uh, and uh, I'll take your question and we can see what we can do. Anyways, thank you again, Dale. Oh, go let, ahead. Let me even say that if people have questions about some of the material I presented tonight, just go to the Living Dying Project website, the email address is there, the phone number is there. I'd be glad to respond to people. Even better. Thank you. Thank you. It was great.